Hey, everyone. It's great to hang out tonight. So tonight we are uh, wrapping up our time in First Timothy for this year, and in January we'll jump back in. Um, so next week we begin our Christmas series, which I'm really excited about. But for tonight, I want to start by asking you to think for a moment, for, to think for a moment about a location or an experience that really embodies the best, the best. I realize there's um, other ways to take this word, but the word family, like what embodies the best of the word family in your mind? What experience, what location? Maybe it's like thinking it back to being a kid, going to grandma's house for, for Thanksgiving um, and the feeling, the warmth of that family moment. Or maybe it's when you and your roommates uh, go to Magic Kingdom uh, for, to go see the Christmas lights every year and you just enjoy that moment. That, that just feels like family. What image comes to your mind? So now I want you to think of a location or an experience that embodies the word frustration to you. Is it still family? No, no. Okay. Um, for me, it's any place that requires patience. So there's three places that come to my mind. One's the DMV. That one's obvious. Um, Another one is the TSA line at the airport, the standard TSA line. I know, right? That's why God gave us the common grace that is known as TSA pre-check. If you don't have it signed up, get it now. It's so worth it. Um, And then the third is standstill traffic on I-4. Does anyone know why it's backed up in the first place? It's been backed up since Jesus died and was resurrected. And it's still that way. I hate places or things that require great degrees of patience. Therefore, it is frustrating to me. Now, when you think of the church, does your, the image in your mind's eye embody the word family or frustration? Now, I grew up in, I grew up in a local church, and now I'm at year 12 uh, serving in different capacities at different local churches in different geographies. Uh, I, I am so far away from learning it all. I have so much left to learn. But one consistent reality that I have discovered so far in my time within the space of ministry is that the church would be so much easier if it was just that it didn't have humans involved in it. Like, like humans are just, and not, not just you, me, like we humans are kind of rough, especially on one another. And I'm not just talking about the crazy, difficult situations. I mean, like the everyday realities of miscommunications and forgotten things and unmet expectations. Like those realities are frustrating. And when we think of other Christians, we can get so frustrated, whether they're individuals who are sitting in the same row as you, don't look around, um, whether they are leaders in local churches, including um, campus pastors, uh, or they can be individuals who post, let's say, interesting things on social media. Christians can be frustrating because they're human. And it can drastically affect the way that we think of one another. But here's the thing, I don't know about you, but I don't desire to live in a state of constant frustration towards other followers of Jesus. I don't want to be so frustrated at the church until one day I just get fed up and walk out the door and never come back. I don't think that's what God desires for us. In fact, we know in the scriptures that that is the opposite of what he desires for us. 
So tonight we continue our journey in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul is going to be writing to Timothy about situations that could be frustrating, but he is going to bring them to the image of family. This idea of how followers of Jesus are called to view one another and how we should live in light of that reality. Now, up till now, um, up till where we are in chapter 5, the first four chapters, one of the main themes has been continually these false teachers who have been bringing in all kind of manipulative nonsense within the church. And Timothy was sent by Paul to this church in Ephesus to go and to correct these false teachers. And so he writes this letter and and constantly he's giving different ways to get to the point of, Timothy, you need to handle these guys. So it's interesting that he would start chapter five, verse one in this way. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, that is a nice sentiment. But that's a little confusing since we know through so far in the letter that Paul definitely wants them to go and confront these false teachers who were older men. He is literally telling Timothy, younger man, to go rebuke false teachers, older men, who have been filling the church with a bunch of confusing, prideful nonsense. So what's Paul writing about here? See, what he is talking about is the tendency and the heart posture that can exist within each and every one of us to move towards frustration rather than family. So let's think for a second. You're Timothy. You're, you're getting this letter and you have already moved your entire life to a church, to the people in Ephesus to go and shepherd and pastor them because there have been these manipulative influencers in their midst who were brought in, who were supposed to be there to help shepherd and to help guide and to help provide gospel clarity, but they're doing none of that. Instead, they've been using their influence and their power to pridefully manipulate the naive, specifically those with the least experience and the most amount of money to build up their reputation, their own lives. If you're Timothy, what are your thoughts or your feelings towards these individuals? Frustrated, right? Like wouldn't it be so frustrating? Like you have a job to do and these guys are coming in right behind and messing it all up. I mean, think about whatever line of work you work in and that reality would be so frustrating, right? Now imagine your job is to bring clarity of the gospel to a community. Why don't they just stop? Why don't they just leave? Do something. Wouldn't it make sense if Timothy, like, exploded on these guys. Absolutely. I don't know if any of you guys ever went to an event that Disney used to hold every year. It was a multi-night concert series called The Night of Joy. And uh, Night of Joy was a Christian concert series that was held originally at Magic Kingdom, eventually went to ESPN, Wide World of Sports. And Night of Joy was this opportunity for um, Christians to come together to worship right in front of the castle. So kind of like a cool concept, right? Now, I never went to Night of Joy. I worked it as a cast member in Guest Relationship Magic Kingdom. Um, if any of you have ever were there, part of it, um, then you probably had similar interactions that I did with other cast members. And if you haven't, talk to the old timers in your work location and they'll let you know about it. Because Night of Joy was one of the most frustrating 
parts of my time working in guest relations in Magic Kingdom. And here's why. Because the individuals who would come would often treat cast members with disrespect, a blatant disregard for the rules, and all trying to accomplish all sorts of nonsense in treating cast members as if they're not even people. And I got to sit in the break room. It was super fun. There was so much frustration. And it's like, Christians, you know, and I'm like, no, you know, it was hard. Now, what these cast members didn't know is that Night of Joy was mostly populated by a bunch of youth groups from all over the Southeast. And they would come and, and, and if you were a part of a church, you know this about youth groups. Youth groups are made of three different types of people. Kids who are uh, faithfully trying to follow Jesus and they're a part of the youth group because that's their desire. There are those whose parents make them go. There are those who aren't believers and they've just been like invited by friends or they're, they're just checking it out. And all three of those types of people are at Night of Joy. So I don't know which one is treating cast members horribly. All I know is it doesn't matter to the cast members I'm sharing a break room with. It's embarrassing. It's frustrating. I actually thought at one point of calling all the youth pastors in the area and saying, guys, get it together. We have, we're over here trying to minister the gospel and you're making it really hard. Stop it. I was frustrated. Don't they know who they're representing? How this affects the Christians who work at Walt Disney World and the impact that we are called to have? That was so frustrating. You see, it's easy to make other Christians our enemies. It's frustrating. It's embarrassing. But what Paul is saying here is to view each other as first and foremost family. Now, read up till now, you will not get the picture that so far Paul has been saying, oh no, just overlook the brokenness of these false teachers. Don't have the conversation. Um, just l- let it slide. That's not Paul at all. But what Paul is doing here is he is giving a heart posture, a lens to see even these ridiculous false teachers, to see them through the lens of the gospel, to see them with a heart of restoration, to see them through a heart of adoption. See, before we are anything else, we are brothers and sisters in the forever family of God. Before we are anything else. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your hope in your life in the lordship and salvation offered by Jesus on the cross and through the beauty of his resurrection, then you were at the moment of his resurrection brought into the forever family of God at the moment that you accept what it means to be a part of his family. That means the most significant thing about you is not something you say about yourself. That means the most significant thing about another follower of Jesus is not something they believe about themselves. It is what Jesus has already secured through the seal of the Holy Spirit, our salvation and our adoption into his forever family. Most of our frustrations come when we see ourselves and our relational dynamics in a number of ways. And many of them are just flat out accurate. We see each other first and foremost as things like coworkers or friends or roommates or mentors or spouses. We see ourselves through the lens of those relational dynamics. 
But that is not the primary relational dynamic that we have with one another if you follow Jesus. Before you are anything else, you are family. Before you are anything else, you're not, it's not like a simile. It's not an allegory. You are family. And what Paul is saying is treat each other as such. Now, raise your hand if you have at least one member of your family of origin that is some level of frustrating. Some, some of you don't have any frustrating family members. I love that for you guys. Um, for the rest of you, I promise not to tell when they come to visit for Christmas, okay? Um, family doesn't mean that frustration never comes. We get that, right? Family doesn't mean that frustration never comes. It means that you see the frustration through the lens of family. And ideally, you push through difficulty because you're family. And if you do grow in healthy relationships with your family of origin, hopefully you begin to approach one another with respect, honor, kindness, gentleness, clarity. It's not that you obfuscate and and push aside the hard stuff. No, you have those conversations, but you have it because you're family, not just because you're right. I really like being right, y'all. But this restoration of the relationship and the good of the other person, it changes the paradigm completely of the way we interact. Now imagine if, if Timothy was living out this example with the way that he went to these false teachers. It doesn't mean he doesn't have some real words to say. It just means that the way he's going to say it is going to be like a son to a spiritual father. It means that we're going to approach like family. It means that you have the hard conversation, but you do it with love and care in your heart. And this brings us to the main point of of this entire message tonight. And if you're a note taker, write this one down. As adopted sons and daughters in the Father's forever family, we are called to love and care for one another. As Adopted kids into God's forever family, we are called to love and care for one another. And Paul is going to dig deep into this fa- these family realities by talking about how the care for one another and specifically for the most vulnerable among them should lead them to interact. Now, going to verse three. Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. But, If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command those these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You're always wondering how Paul really feels about things, right? But at the heart of this, what Paul is getting at is that as 
family, as adopted sons and daughters into the Father's forever family, we are called to love and care for one another. So Paul takes the concept of family. He's going to drill down deep to display that our family love should take us to intentional and practical spaces for one another, especially the most vulnerable among us. Now, in their culture, there were two groups of people who were at the bottom of any social ladder in any culture. That was the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. In their patriarchal society, if the, in fact, if, uh, if there wasn't a father in the home, then uh, a child, even though the child might have, be at home with a mom, that child was already considered an orphan. That was already the label attached. And likewise with the widow, if the widow's husband had passed away, she is a widow. In other words, they were in a space of vulnerability because in their culture, the husband slash father, their role was to protect and to provide and to provide the social and legal protections for their entire family. So if you lose your husband or your father, that makes you in a very, very vulnerable space. And they were not just vulnerable, they were vulnerable in the midst of a very harsh culture. There's no social security, no, no social protections within their cultural moment. You see, that might be the the culture of the kingdom of Rome, but that is the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. See, the way of Jesus tangibly looks at the vulnerable and says, I see you. Hence why in uh, James 1, verse 27, when uh, Jesus' brother James was writing, he said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself untainted from the world. In other words, what Paul and James are both sinking on is care for those who are truly vulnerable among you. But notice he draws a really interesting line here. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. It's kind of an odd phrase, right? True widows. And then he gives some qualification to what he means is a true widow. He says, a true widow has no family relations to take care of her. Otherwise, they should, those family members should step up to the plate and provide for her and give her security and stability. But he says a true widow is somebody who doesn't have that safety net of family. He also says a true widow is someone who has demonstrated spiritual maturity and passion. Now, neither in the Roman world nor in our present world is there a spiritual maturity test for you to become a widow, Right? To become a widow means that your husband has passed away. So what is Paul doing here? Well, if you look at the context of this section, Paul is talking about the protection and the care for the most vulnerable class of widows within their church community. Hence why he says that a widow should, should be financially stable if her family's taken care of her. Now, he's also concerned about individuals who are actually going to be hurt by the help that could potentially be offered by being enabled. Hence why he says in verse six, that really odd thing where he says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Like that's not exactly like a cute verse, right? You're not putting that one up on Pinterest. So why does it sound so harsh? Well, Paul isn't judging the situation. He's stating the obvious. To financially support someone who is going to be enabled by the support 
isn't going to lead them to life and flourishing. It's just going to create an entirely different problem. This is why he is explaining the importance of spiritual maturity because these true widows are going to be blessed but not enabled by the community's generosity and care. Now, it can be easy with this passage to view it as extremely restrictive. In fact, as I was reading, you might have been like, whoa, that's a lot. But that is the last thing that Paul is desiring to do and that doesn't reflect God's heart. What Paul is actually doing is ensuring that the truly vulnerable among them are being truly cared for by the family of God. Now that is something that was cataclysmically different within the Roman world that they found themselves. There was nothing like this in the Roman world. Widows weren't taken care of in legal contract and inheritances in any other way. But here Paul is saying, in this family, we care for them. In this family, everyone's taken care of. Hence why he's sounding off so harshly in verse eight, when he's talking about family members who, true, who refuse to take care of widows. And he says those really kind things about them, right? He is saying like, no, seriously, your family, step up. Paul's taking this very seriously. Now, I care a lot about this concept. Um, uh, most of you guys know this, but my dad passed away almost six years ago. And he left behind my mom, uh, who is far too young to uh, lose her husband. Now, thankfully, from a financial level, her and my dad worked really hard to make sure that if either of them ever passed away, that the other would be well taken care of, which is awesome. My mom also has obviously has me and Allie and our kids and also my brother and sister-in-law. So she has family to come around her. So my mom wouldn't fit into this true widow category that Paul is fleshing out here. But my mom does have different needs that are unique to her. Ways that our family has worked to try to surround her to take care of her in the midst of the grief and the aftermath of losing my dad. Now I mention this because it's easy to read this passage and maybe think, well, Meaning is pretty clear. We're kind of in a biblical community that's fairly young. So how does this apply to us? You see, caring for the vulnerable in our midst and in our families should not be something that is just meant to be theory. It's not meant to be something that's left up to someone else. If we are truly family, then we have a responsibility to take care of one another, especially the most vulnerable individuals amongst us, those experiencing grief, mental health realities, financial need, and hardship. Now, absolutely, just like Paul warned, it's important that we ensure that our help doesn't ultimately end up hurting the people that we're trying to care for. Absolutely. Paul called Timothy to be wise and discerning. But to justify doing nothing and caring for the vulnerable is not the way of Jesus. We, me, you, we are called to engage. See, as adopted sons and daughters and the father's forever family, we are called to love and care for one another. Now, Paul goes on to say, let a widow be enrolled if 
She is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So now he's talking about this type of thing that he calls enrollment for these true widows. So most scholars don't believe that this is referring to some version of like earning their keep, um, that uh, you better be working hard uh, for the church if you are expecting to be taken care of by the church. But instead, what Paul, what Paul is doing here is something really beautiful. He is seeing these spiritual mothers, these elderly widows in the church that come with experience and wisdom and because of the loss of their husbands, have the resource of time. And then what he is talking about is this idea of making a covenant within the family, within the church to forsake any future of remarriage or anything like that, to be able to dedicate themselves fully to the life of the church. Hence why Paul's saying that they need to be well-tested and displaying godliness if they're going to exist in places where they're going to be well-seen. Now, Here's what I love about this passage. What Paul is saying is that elderly widows of spiritual maturity should be not just provided for, which is wonderful and awesome in and of itself, but also that they should be given space to invest in others. What a gift. Because as adopted sons and daughters and the fathers forever family, we are called to love and care for one another. Now in verse 11, Paul continues, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Beside that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So once again, Paul's saying something that is super interesting, right? But what he is getting at is the fact that this enrollment, again, is meant to be a lifetime covenant commitment to a certain type of life. They don't have to enter into it, but if you're going to enter into it, as soon as you make a covenant before God, that becomes binding before him. As soon as you make a covenant before God, it becomes binding So what Paul is saying is this is a big, big deal. And if you're a younger widow, then there is a shot that you might have another opportunity for remarriage that might appear, which coincidentally will then offer you protection and security financially. And so you might ditch the covenant and go after and go and get remarried. And that would be unfaithfulness to a covenant. So Paul explains here in verse 14 that instead what he would desire for younger widows to do is that if they have an opportunity to be remarried, go ahead and enter into that. Go after that. So that you're not unfaithful to a covenant promise you're making. Now in verse 15, we discover that in fact, some of these women were doing exactly that and it was unhelpful. Now again, each step of the way, Paul is writing out of a space of loving care for this community, that they would see their responsibility to take care of one another. And so Paul finishes where we'll leave off tonight. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, once again, he finishes off with that phrase, truly widows. 
In other words, the church should take care of widows who are truly vulnerable. You see, in the economy of the kingdom of heaven, there, are, there should be no woman whose husband dies and they aren't taken care of. So their first level of defense would be their family, their family of origin. Let them take care of it. And if they don't have that level of protection, don't worry, we got the rest. They should be taken care of well, the most vulnerable. See, in this passage, we see God saying to the most vulnerable, I see you. In the midst of a culture that could have cared less about the fatherless and the widow, Jesus honors and elevates and wraps his arm around the vulnerable and he does it through the local church. The ones who are frustrating sometimes are also family. As adopted sons and daughters and the father's forever family, we are called to love and care for one another. I want you to look to your left and to your right, in front and behind you. How do you see the other people sitting in this room? Friends? Complete strangers because you're first time in this room? (laughs) Enemies? Hypocrites? Or brothers and sisters who just like you daily need the grace and peace of Jesus in their lives? Now I realize not everyone in this room would say that they are followers of Jesus. And if that is you, then we want you to know you're in a safe community to discover and ask questions and explore. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we are to recalibrate the thinking of our mind to see other followers of Jesus who very well might be frustrating. Just kidding. They are frustrating. Every person in this room, if you got to know them well, I guarantee you they will frustrate you at some point. For all of you who know me well, already have been frustrated multiple times. I'm sorry about it. Okay. We are frustrating because we're imperfect. Hence, you know, that whole need for grace kind of thing, right? The one I disagree with on just about everything. The one who is believing dangerous lies in our midst. The one who is living in sinful patterns. The one who talks behind my back. The one who posts those interesting things on social media. Those ones are my brothers and sisters. Do you believe it? Act like it. Think like it. If you have a problem, you go to your brother or sister in gentleness with a view of your own sinfulness first. If you are worried about the trajectory of another person, don't go to a third party. Go to the person with a heart that is bursting with love and care and compassion. If you see someone in our midst who is truly vulnerable, who is suffering silently, who is hurting, don't just wish that somebody would enter in. Engage. We are brothers and sisters. Act like it. Believe it. By God's grace, he'll help us do that a little bit more each and every day. I know I need it. Now tonight, we want to take time engaging with brothers and sisters. The way we're going to do that, we've done a few times this year, is we're going to take time to pray with one another Feel free to just turn to um, one, two people that are sitting near you. Um, 
If you're new, feel free to just join into another group. I'm sure they'd love to have you. If you're, if you're here though, and you don't know what you think about this, this whole Jesus guy, or, or you're just not very comfortable praying out loud, feel free to just join into a group and just offer a prayer request if you'd like, or just sit and watch and listen. And just know that what we're doing here tonight is an expression of what it looks like to love and care for one another. So we're going to take about 10 minutes and do that, and then we'll keep going. Would you all pray with me? Father, thank you for listening. Lord, you hear the voices of your kids. In the scriptures, we discovered that that you're not just far off hearing uncaringly but you're active and living, moving in the midst of our words to you. So Lord, your kids, your sons and your daughters are lifting up their voices of prayer to you tonight in this space. Pray that you would hear them and respond. More than that, Lord, I pray that it would not be a one-sided conversation where we just bring our needs and our desires and our requests to you but that we would have our ears and our minds open to you to listen and obey your word, to surrender fully to you every single day. Lord, help us to care and to love you, one another, and our neighbor outside of these walls. Help us to do it because you have first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.